Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books and Christian Studies. I'm your host, Ryan Shelton, and today we're joined by Dr. Sean McGeever, author of the new book, Born Again, The Evangelical Theology of Conversion in John Wesley and George Whitfield, just published by Lexham Press in 2020. This book presents a detailed historical theological account of how the two eminent revivalists of the 18th century understood the concept most associated with the first great awakening, conversion. Congratulations on the book, Sean, and welcome to the show. Thank you, Ryan. Appreciate you having me. Uh, it's great, great to have you here. Uh, before we get into the book, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, yeah. Um, I work for a ministry to young people called Young Life here in Phoenix, Arizona, and I've been doing that for about twenty years. I've been in the same community and working in the same schools, and so. It's a great passion of mine. Um, I didn't grow up in the church, but uh, that ministry kind of introduced me to all that. So really passionate about that. Um, so that's a lot of fun. Keeps me young. And, uh, and then mm-hmm. also for the last decade, I've been teaching at Grand Canyon University in the College of Theology, uh, teaching systematic theology, uh, hermeneutics, uh, things like that. So yeah, yeah, that's, that's kind of uh, what I do here in, uh, in sunny Phoenix. Uh, so yeah, excellent. Well, tell us a little bit about what launched you into this project, Born Again. Um, what were some of the the research interests that got you to study this particular topic? Yeah, so I went to the University of St Andrews and was working on a Master of Letters, and I undertook a dissertation with Steve Holmes, Dr. Steve Holmes on the gospel and how it was proclaimed from the rule of faith up to the Council of Nicaea, because I had a lot of interest in how people talk about summarizing the gospel message. So I had a real interest in the, you know, what followed after the time of the New Testament and how they would summarize the gospel message. And that was great. And I enjoyed doing that uh, and wrote my dissertation. But it led me to continue to ask more questions about how folks talk about the gospel. And for myself, uh, uh, a bit uneasy at the moment, but still identify with the evangelical heritage of things. And that led me (laughs) to want to undertake a research question about how uh, early evangelicals understood the concept of conversion. And so that's what I did. And that led me to realized that if I wanted to discuss that, that John Wesley and George Whitfield were um, at the top of the list about what this means for early evangelicals. And really, you know, when you look at the Bebbington Quadrilateral, what have you, that as it turned out, conversionism is one of those things and that no one had in a systematic and historical way looked at how they thought about conversion. And so I was interested in it, uh, certainly as an academic, because this is a research question that no one had addressed. But also, to be honest, I work in the field of evangelism practically and try to share that message with folks. And so I had a real um, practical reason that I wanted to understand more about that message um, and what they meant by it. That's right. Um, 
Yeah, it is. It is interesting with as much that has been written about these two figures in particular, um, you know, the need for someone to actually map out the topography of what did they actually believe about this thing called conversion. So I'm so grateful that you have given us that um, that really nuanced, detailed study of their beliefs. Well, let's start with with your first subject. So you start with John Wesley. Mm-hmm. How did he come to understand what conversion is and and what did you find unique or surprising in your in your research about his about his theology of conversion? Right. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, John Wesley is gonna for some folks be the more well-known one because he left such a legacy with the Methodist Church and all of that, um, which always is indicative of of kind of the John Wesley version of Methodism, which is a a, a question too. But um yeah, wow. I mean, if there's one thing that people know about John Wesley, it's going to be about his Aldersgate moment. I mean, that's kind of a pivotal moment in, you know, evangelicalism and kind of you know, modern Christianity or I guess relatively. And so that his heart was strangely warmed is is kind of the thing that if you know one thing about John Wesley, other than him being the founder of Methodism, that's it. And so scholars, Methodist scholars, um, have certainly <laughs> there's endless books written on what what that meant. Uh, but one of the things that that puts at the fore, for sure, and is significant for our study of that era and Christianity in general's experience, you know, and so having been raised um, in the Church of England, experience wasn't always um, the most um, foundational aspect of a person's faith um, or connection to the church, um, what have you, uh, the more foundational issues would be your baptism and your continued attendance um, would, would be near the top of kind of what that meant for their identity as a Christian. And so Wesley's, and his his background is a bit unique with his parents and some other things that are circling around his story pre-Aldersgate and all that. But um, uh, that that's kind of, yeah, the, the role of experience. And, and so for Wesley, the idea of conversion and, and the way that I come to understand how they understand, you know, we're formulating the concept of conversion. It, it's an experiential concept. It lives on the side of things that I can put my finger on most of the time, almost all the time, which ended up being a, a bit of a debate um, uh, for folks, but, but it lives in the world of experience. And I, sometimes I just got kind of like um, kind of the tip of the iceberg above the water that you can see and go there, there it is rather than some of the other doctrinal aspects about um, regeneration and justification and when does this happen, especially for Church of England saying, is that happening at um, baptism, which by and large um, would have all been infant uh, in this audience. So it's it's locating the concept of conversion for someone like Wesley and other Church of England with their experience, uh, rather their, their kind of memorable experience rather than um, maybe their um, sacramental uh, moments, if you will. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit about the distinction that you make between uh, the Wesley, and this is true of both Wesley and Whitfield, the, the, their theology of conversion uh, being teleological, uh, the te- teleology of conversion instead of the, the RK. Um, tell us a little bit about mm-hmm. that distinction that you're making and, and what, what are what are you uh, trying to get at with that with that distinction? Yeah, yeah, I'm really glad that you brought that up. So when I say that Wesley and Whitfield were um, 
focused on and agreed upon and, and kind of stacked hands on the, you know, the teleology of, of conversion. Um, at other times I call it kind of the, the trajectory or vector of conversion. Um, it's, it's what's moving forward and where is it going? The reason that I highlight this is because when folks were discussing uh, uh, when am I regenerated and things like this, it ended up lending itself to questions about the RK or the beginning of conversion and getting into, um, to be honest, for practical ministry purposes, not super productive conversations, but instead um, division. So uh, rather than um, a focus um, in about when, when we're talking about conversion in particular on the um, order of salvation, election, and how these things are ordered, which is a fair enough conversation to have. And I don't say that's not unimportant. Um, what you see with Wesley Whitfield is after a bit of a kind of grumpy start, um, maybe a, a teenage angst moment in uh, roughly 37, uh, 1737 through 1741, you do see them kind of making a turn in maturity where they don't really decide, they don't decide not to argue as much about the predestination election arguments as much. They kind of put that aside. Um, so it was very loud in that era. So if if people do go back and study Wesley and Whitfield, they'll run into that era and you could actually be misled thinking this was the nature of kind of their ministries. But, but these guys lived for quite a while. That, that was one chapter, but it, it kind of rose and it was very loud and then it, it, it simmered down and what their, their ministries turned into more. And the reason why they could preach in each other's pulpits and that Wesley could preach um, Whitfield's eulogy at, 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 they had agreed upon the request was, well, Whoever dies first, I'll preach your, your eulogy. I'll be at your funeral. Mm. Um, I'll speak on on your behalf about about your you know about your life. Um, this was because, and one of the reasons I was drawn to them. You have Whitfield, who's a well known reformed um, evangelist. For, you know, if there ever was one, um, uh, and then you have uh, you know Wesley, who's the Arminian um, uh, evangelist. Well, how is it that these two two folks could could work together yeah. after like i said they do have that one chapter but after that you really don't see much of that um they really work well together and i think it's because they they set aside to realize that it was more of a it just wasn't a priority conversation about the arche of the way that the word of salutis works or kind of how conversion where it's birthed from or not birth birth is the wrong word but where it to try to describe its origins instead they said where's this going and for them and this is this would be one of the things that um I would want readers to take away from my book, um, especially modern readers, is that for them, um, things like the sinner's prayer, the modern version of the sinner's prayer, that was not conversion for them. Hmm. Yeah. So that, that's a later um, development with Finney and others. Um, they were concerned in a much more interlocked way between the... Um, the, the role of faith and the, the experience of conversion, but, but kind of hand in hand with where it was going. This was a, yeah. a direction that you were turning towards. So the kind of etymology of uh, conversion in itself is a turning from something into something. Mm -hmm. So, you know, away from myself um, and towards Christ, these sorts of things from into, from into that's the kind of morphology of it. And so for them, 
this this what is it that I'm turning to and pointing my source myself toward that would be like the teleology what's the purpose or end towards which I'm turning myself towards and I'm going to continue to walk in that and so it does have a kind of initial moment um, but it has a trajectory and a kind of a vector um, at a science background so it has the velocity and direction um, that that you would want with uh, a vector as opposed to just a, a movement so yeah yeah excellent Sean right after your chapter that you discuss the the main components of Wesley's theology of conversion. You, you discuss some attendant themes, um, and I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about just some of those attendant themes. But specifically, um, this this idea of assurance. This is something that Wesley seems to have moved uh, throughout his career on. Tell us a little bit about um, just kind of what these attendant themes are, and and especially how Wesley developed his idea of assurance. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think for, for Wesley, and then I know we might talk more about Whitfield in a moment, but um, the general approach to well, Wesley's view of assurance was um, in early Wesley, he has so many different phases he goes through. It is, um, you must have assurance. Like it, you're going to have assurance. Um, this confidence that you are saved in the moment right now is essentially your salvation. Um, uh and so if you, uh, and it's not as if my salvation is hinging upon every momentary doubt. Um, but there is some sort of version like that, um, where, um, uh, real faith has assurance with it at all times. That's kind of the definition of faith, which is, I have a current trust in, in Christ. So, um, with that, he starts out very optimistic. Even when you read in Aldersgate, it's it's really sad. A lot of people don't, don't read what was Wesley's experience in the next day or the two days after. And, and it's like heartbreaking to read how Wesley is now doubting even his Aldersgate experience um, and, and how wow. genuine um, he was. And, um, and so you, you just see him uh, struggling with that. Now, one of the things with Wesley is he rarely goes back and corrects himself publicly. He will not say, he will not say I was wrong about something very often and then come back. Instead, what he tends to do is he tends to modify and, um, things. So he, he, he will, he will still lift up assurance kind of your, um, that you currently have faith is it, it goes hand in hand with the, my assurance that I'm saved by the blood of Christ. But later in his ministry, the things that creep up with him just trying to modify and just tack on and say, well, I didn't quite mean this. I didn't quite mean that is he did so much pastoral ministry that he runs into um, enough instances where there's people who say, um, I can kind of check every box that you can imagine, Wesley. I, I have the, I have a a conversion experience. I have a real faith. I have a historical faith in the doctrines, et cetera. I have all these other things, all these manifestations of love. I have all these, but I, but I don't have assurance. And so are you saying that I should really be like, I just, that wavers with me. So are you saying that I'm really not saved or I'm really not regenerate or that I should, I, you know, what do I do with that? He ended up running into enough pastoral situations where he, he does back off from this claim that, um, you have to have assurance. So I end up saying that assurance of salvation is available, but not required for a genuine convert. That converts don't always have assurance of salvation. 
Um, that's what that's what Wesley and I, and that's what Whitfield also goes on to to come at, which is yeah, they do that in different ways though. Well, Sean, one of the things that I think your book does so so brilliantly is show, as you've alluded to already in, in our conversation, that some of the differences between these two figures, between Wesley and Whitfield, has has maybe been a little bit overstated in the historiography. So um, I'd like to move now to to kind of some of your work on George Whitfield. And and of course, um, you you make the point that the, he's really not diverging significantly from Wesley's understanding of conversion but but what were some of the things that were that that Whitfield in particular brings to the uh, to the conversation and and then a little bit about where he where he is starting to uh, to part ways or or, or go his own direction mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well what you see early on with Whitfield is he is um, not easy to pin down as um, a Calvinist or reformed. He says things like, I've never read Calvin. Um, it, it kind of it doesn't emerge from an obvious place. And he also, his sermons were best selling. I mean, he was really one of the first um, kind of mega stars in Christianity. I mean, just the amount of publications. Um, that he had is its is its own issue. Like a uh, that's a whole different topic about uh, kind of the commercialization of Christianity. Um, but my point right now is that he his writings were sold everywhere. Well, so these early accounts of his yeah. journeys and some of his early sermons um, come out, and the earliest versions of them uh, look different from. From later, because what he goes back is he adjusts some of the language. So what we have as historians is we can see what words does he choose to adjust. Well, he ends up adjusting a lot of his earlier sermons and his journal um, entries about his life and his journeys, um, his accounts uh, in more um, kind of Calvinistic or uh, you know uh, reformed uh, phraseology and understandings. So. That that's where where we do have this chapter that is rather well known between Wesley and Whitfield in 1737 through 1741, roughly. Um, and my friend Joel Houston wrote the best book on on that relationship um, there. What happens there? But it's over precisely where they would be different. Which is, for instance, you just asked about assurance. Well. Wesley is going to put more emphasis on the assurance that is possible. He doesn't say it's required, but he's going to say it's um, uh, going to be due more to your present experience of faith right in the moment and that that's available to you uh, by the mercy and provenient grace of God in any moment. Whitfield is going to say that's due to election. Um, So your experience of that Mm -hmm. is not due to provenient grace. Um, It's due to you being elect. So, um, it does come up from time to time, uh, you know, on that, um, it, 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 Whitfield and Wesley end up having, um, handling the issue of baptismal regeneration differently as well. So one of the really interesting things with Wesley is because of, uh, Methodism's emergence in America and, you know, American independence and the formation of American Methodism that he, he, Wesley has an opportunity um, to help rewrite the prayer book. And so his adjustments to the infant um, baptismal, right, are clear 
uh, results of his view of regeneration not happening. Actually, it doesn't necessarily, and I use the word necessarily in a particular way, it doesn't necessarily happen in the moment of the baptism. Um, but but Whitfield doesn't get to rewrite a prayer book. He stays in the Church of England um, and doesn't do, well, so does Wesley, but um, he doesn't have the opportunity like what the American Methodist did. And so how he navigates baptismal regeneration is much more in a reformed way, which you can end up seeing um, emerge in the Westminster Confession and in some other um, variants within the Church of England, some evangelical um, uh, wings of the Church of England in the 19th century, where they understand um, baptismal regeneration um, uh, as a potential um, that uh, like a two-stage this sounds a bit wild, but a two-stage regeneration that's rooted in the grace of God. Um, and in, in for some, depending on how you read it, and this is how Whitfield reads it, in election itself. So so their basis for understanding like how re, uh, regeneration happens and when it happens, um, the reasoning behind how they can work that out is different. Um, and assurance is the same thing. Um, for Whitfield, he's going to base, uh, if you do have assurance, it's because you're elect. I mean, it's, it's a, a bit more straightforward. Yeah. Yeah. Those are a couple of things. Great. So yeah, I, I've talked about how one of the things that I love that you do in this book is you, you kind of highlight the, the areas of agreement between these two. So while they are, are more alike than, than maybe the historiography has indicated, Yet the movement that they've founded, so evangelicalism today, is maybe more unlike some of the the conversion theology that these two 18th century uh, ministers would have. Anything more that you'd like to say about the ways that you've seen um, the the discrepancies between the their theology and that theology of conversion that's operant today? Yeah, thanks, Ryan. I mean, I. I uh do some of that at the end of my book. So the last chapter of my uh, you know, book, Born Again, is a bit of a brief assessment about how their the early evangelical theology of conversion is you know, put forward by Weston Whitfield um, compares to some modern uh, approaches to that. So that, you know, any reader that is interested in how these compare can, can you know, pick up the book um, and see uh, how that's, that's done. But if I was to highlight two things right now. Um, like I said earlier, uh, the sinner's prayer is not conversion. I think that Wesley Whitfield would not recognize most modern evangelistic approaches and methodologies. Um, and here's a a couple of reasons why like the, the sinner's prayer, the, um, the anxious bench, these sorts of things, the come to Jesus moment at the end of every sermon. Um, that's, that's definitely more, uh, we owe that to Finney. We, we, Charles. So that's that's something that you have to look to a hundred years later, you know, or have, not quite a hundred years, but you have to look later to find that the way that we recognize it now. So for Wesley and Whitfield, one of the things that you would consistently see that's different would be a type of patience that yeah. Finney and that modern evangelicals um, don't have. So for, like, so here's a story. What because these, you know, they kept their circuit riders, they would go and they traveled so much. And so they would end up returning to the same locations year after year, you know, and, and we have the letters from 
the people that they visited. And so you can look at the impact that the first year, the second year, and the third year of Wesley or Whitfield's sermons had on them as they're writing to friends. So it's not uncommon um, for when you're reviewing the first time that they hear Wesley or Whitfield that they um, use this kind of phrase- phraseology, which is they say, I feel convinced or I feel, I feel convicted. I feel awakened to something. These are the words. Those, those are kind of documented in my book. But uh, there will be something that's kind of stirring in them. But that, 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 and then, and then Wesley Whitfield will come back a year later, six months later or something, and they'll hear perhaps even the same sermon. And then you'll hear them say, um, I, I, I started to feel something. Um, and I, I, I felt like I started to have, um, Oh, you know, the birth pangs, they'll use this idea of birth pangs. Um, I I was starting to feel the birth pangs in my soul um, for my need for Christ. And, and then a year later, you'll read these letters and say, I finally had that moment. I feel like I converted and I laid myself at the feet and that I was, uh, you know, born anew and I was um, being reformed in the image of God. And, and I had my conversion moment and I had this experience. So with that, my point in saying kind of this, like, is, is the patience and the, the timing. Um, it is frequent when you read the, the sermons of Whitfield, of which I've read them all, about two thirds of them do close with something along the lines that, that you should turn to Christ. But it's not in, he doesn't then say, so let's seal the deal here. Let's, let's have you enter into the gates of heaven. Let's, you know, sign a pledge card. Let's, you know, it's, it's, uh, so there was a patience. And then the other thing would be the trajectory, you know, modern evangelicalism, it feels a bit like a get out of hell, um, free card that you can stick in your wallet and and cash in when you die, they would have nothing to do with that. That would have been, um, disgusting Christianity to them. Um, for them, uh, I mean, in fact, that's one of the things that they were pushing against. They saw a church that was so dead, um, that was not really doing what they thought, um, that Christians should be doing. Uh, the last thing that they wanted to do with their evangelism was to create another um, situation where folks could then just retire back to their houses or their churches and um, not have any manifestations of actually being um, uh, being uh, from being an almost Christian to um, a full Christian, a real Christian. Um, so, yeah, they, they would have expected um, the fruit. Um, to fall from the tree, they would have expected um, a change of Christ-like behavior and good works. Um, they, uh, conversion was always marked by ongoing good works for them. Yeah. Excellent. Well, Sean, you've written a, a wonderful book in Born Again. Maybe bef- the last question a- about the book is, who who do you hope would, would read this book? Uh, who are some people that you think could could really benefit from the arguments that you're making here? Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Ron. I mean, I would hope that someone who is wanting to reassess how they preach the gospel, Mm. if for some reason right now in this moment or whatever your own studies, you're thinking, are there ways that I might want to reassess how I'm preaching the gospel for whatever reason, this would be a, this would be one resource that you could look at because it's essentially a snapshot Mm. of the moment that evangelicalism latched on to that you can be born again. So if you want a snapshot about how do people preach the gospel, then, um, because you're interested about how you might, I would say that this is a book for you. If for yeah. some reason um, you do not associate, you feel some disjuncture as an evangelical or you, or maybe you know some evangelicals, but 
you have a sense that modern evangelicalism may not be representative of all the history of evangelicalism, I'd recommend you read my book because once again, you're going to see a snapshot of definitely what's a very, a, 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 has a different taste, a different ethos, a different um, focus of what evangelicalism means. Um, and so if you, if you're a disrupted evangelical or, or like, or know some people, this is a book that could give you a different snapshot. Yeah. Sean, if I, if I might be so bold as to suggest one other, uh, group of readers it's those who are looking for models for evangelical cooperation Mm, um i think that that's a beautiful there's a beautiful ecumenical um kind of mere christian mere evangelical um thread throughout the book that we've we've been talking about throughout which i think just makes it a real a real gem in that way well sean you've been you've been so generous with your time today to come and, and talk about your book born again what are you working on now? Uh, what can people look forward to coming out from um, from you in the future? Uh, yeah, yeah. Just uh, got a couple things in the works. I just finished a chapter for um, the OUP handbook on Christian fundamentalism. They asked me to write a chapter on conversion. So mm-hmm. that'll be out, I don't know, in a year or two probably. Um, but that was fascinating to work on. Uh, I am writing a book on evangelism for Lexham Press. They have... Uh, a set of books called the Lexa Ministry Guides. So I'm writing a book uh, for pastors and ministers um, on evangelism. I finished a book uh, that I turned in uh, not long ago to Zondervan on, it's called The Good News of Your Limits or some version of that. And it's uh, essentially uh, a book that tries to reckon with uh, theological anthropology and productivity. In a nutshell, uh, God made me limited. What are the implications of action, not just a productivity, how can I do more and more and more, but in light of uh, the way that God made us, um, how does this then land with uh, kind of productivity and, and concepts of that? Um, and then the other thing that I've been working on is is Wesley Whitfield and Edwards on slavery. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah. I, have a, wow. I have a proposal in, on that because uh, when I was digging in this, you know, there were some things I couldn't get to, but... Uh, I think that that story and some of the uh, ups and downs, and to be honest, most of the downs are, uh, I I think that there's some really useful um, things that we could glean from those stories. Um, So that's, I'm pretty deep in that right now. Those all sound like great projects. Maybe we can have you back on the show to talk about them as they, as they come to press. Well, um, we've been talking with Dr. Sean McGeever about his new book, Born Again, The Evangelical Theology of Conversion in John Wesley and George Whitfield, published by Lexham Press in 2020. Thanks so much for joining us, Sean. Thank you, Ryan. And thank you for listening to New Books and Christian Studies. Be sure to like and subscribe and share the word. Go to our website at newbooksnetwork.com to listen to more great interviews and find out more information about any of the books that we feature on our show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you have a great day.